Good morning, Watermark. Woo! Today's scripture is Matthew chapter 18, verses 12 through 20. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one who wandered off? And if he finds it, truly, I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. But if they, if they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church... Treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. All right. Good morning. Interesting passage, right? Lots of weird stuff going on, lots of weird language, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to start at the bottom, and we're going to go backwards through it, because I need you to understand this if you're going to understand that, and then that will actually make a lot more sense too, okay? See how this works? So um, uh, I'm trying to see if there's any like uh, stuff I need to announce before we get, I don't think there is. It's Thanksgiving week, in case you didn't know. I know some of you college students literally didn't know. I met a guy this morning, and I was like, no, I can't meet this week. It's Thanksgiving. He's like, it's Thanksgiving this week? I'm like, yeah, you're going to have to have dinner with your parents. He goes, I live with my parents, and I didn't even know. So it's Thanksgiving, by the way. Um, And so we're having a sermon on reconciliation and forgiveness. See how that works? I didn't even time this. I didn't even plan this. Um, Okay, so I'm going to open us up in a word of prayer. And then, like I said, we are going to, oh, it happened again. Hey, uh, hey, Mike, you want to run up here and, uh, and, and fix my problems for my life? Thanks. And I'm going to pray, and we're going to pretend this is not happening. Okay. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. I ask that uh, you would help us to be present here, that um, we could be able to put aside all of the... Uh, the, the, the stress of our week, of our coming week, maybe the things we've been working through, the, the heavy work, burdens that we're bearing. Um, and I ask that, uh, that you would allow us to just, to just be here, present with our family, with our brothers and sisters, and allow ourselves to contemplate ancient things, look for a higher meaning in it all, um, and, and think of what it could do to our lives if we, if we lived in this ancient way that, that Jesus was calling us to. Um, awaken us in some way. In your name, amen. Thank you, sir. Hey, we're back. Look at that. It just fixed itself. Um, okay. Now, thank you, Mike. Okay, so we're going to start here, Matthew 18, 18. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, I have heard this passage growing up used all kinds of ways. Perhaps you have heard televangelists use it to bind demons and loose the demons I don't know why you would loose them, um, but, um, <laughs> but you, perhaps you've heard it used in this way for people saying, I, we're going to bind this in this name and we're going to bind this. And, um, I understand the, the, the propensity to interpret things in this way in, in like this sort of aspect if you're a person that's very in tune with ideas like spiritual warfare. Um, 
I, the most important thing when, when I'm reading the text that, that, that I'm looking for is what would the original readers of this text think of when they hear this? In the first century, in the year that this was written, um, what was going on? What was life like? Uh, what specifically was the life of the, the, the listener of this text who was her, hearing this read to them? What was their life like? Um, and, and, and how does that pertain to this particular text? So here's what I do know. Um, the idea of binding and loosing. Hey, Mike. You don't, just reboot that little thing there. I'll just talk to you. These people aren't here. Just reboot that little white thing. And I'll do this. And uh, until then, until then, hit that space bar for me, if it could, and throw up the next slide. Um, okay, so binding and loosing in the, in the first century. Yeah, go ahead and hit the, hit, the, hit the next slide for me. Okay, binding and loosing in the first century was a Jewish idea. It, it specifically had to do with interpretation of scripture. Um, and binding and loosing, uh, binding was, pro, was, called, was referred to as how, as how they would describe prohibiting an interpretation. Um, loosing is how they would... Um, is how they would permit interpretation. And here's what this means. Um, you would read the text and your rabbi would say, um, this text is bound. It can only mean one thing and this is what it means. Um, or the rabbi would look at the, at, the, at the students, the disciple, the Talmudim, and the rabbi would say, this text is loose. I, we loose this text and you can, I want to hear some interpretations. We're going to loose this up. I, I want to hear what you guys think about this. Now, in the first century, the, um, the rabbis were considered, the language that was used about them is that they, they held what's called the keys to the kingdom of God. Hit the next slide for me. Um, the keys to the kingdom of God. Um, this, these are ancient first century keys. Oftentimes they were built onto rings because you don't have belts and purses and stuff, right? Um, so they would kind of wear these things. And, and the, the, the first century rabbis would, 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 They'd speak of them as if these people hold the keys to open the kingdom of heaven. When we say kingdom of heaven, we're not talking about a disembodied location somewhere else. That's more neo-Gnostic Platonism than anything else. What we're talking about is the kingdom of heaven is um, a group of people living um, as citizens of a kingdom of which Jesus is king and we follow him, even though we are in the midst of these earthly kingdoms, um, we have a king who is Jesus. Uh, Paul calls us resident aliens, right? Um, so we're living amongst these earthly kings, but we are, as a church, citizens of a different kingdom, and we live in this other way with Jesus as Lord. And as long as um, things align with Jesus as Lord and king, then we continue to live in this way. Um, so this is what the kingdom of heaven is. The the rabbis uh, cons- were, were considered the people who, who held the keys to this kingdom of heaven. In other words, they could um, interpret the law and the prophets in a way that would teach you what it means to be a citizen of this kingdom of heaven. Um, and, and so um, there's this passage where Jesus, in Matthew chapter 16, um, the way Matthew is structured is it starts with the birth of Christ, and he's teaching his his disciples. He's gathering disciples and he's teaching them all the way up to the very center of the book, Matthew 16. And he's, te- he's teaching them um, how to interpret the law. He says, you've heard this, but I say this. You have heard this said, but I say this. It's very rabbinical, very Talmudim disciple and rabbi, right? Um, and so they're walking with him and they're learning all of his ways. And there comes a moment where Jesus goes to this place and he sits them down and he looks at them and he says, now, who do you think that I am? And they are supposed to interpret now his entire life. Who do you think that I am? All of my teachings and everything, what do, what do you comprehend? 
And, and Peter looks and Peter says, you are the Messiah. You are the king. That quote is the very center of the book of Matthew. Okay, It divides into two whole halves of the book. Um, Jesus teaching his people. And then there's this proclamation of you are the Messiah. And after that, there's this sentence. And it goes like this. Um, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So there is this passing of, of the keys from the rabbi to the disciples. And from this point forward, what you see is the disciples going out and now doing the things that Jesus was doing. They're teaching and they're healing and they're bringing wholeness to communities. And they are reconciling people together. Okay, So there's this break in the middle. It all has to do with the keys. And so what this is, is Jesus giving his disciples his delegated authority. Okay, he is the rabbi, and he, there comes a point where the rabbi looks at the student and says, you are ready. Here are the keys to the kingdom. You can now carry on my work. You will be my presence in this world. It's the same way that, that the Jewish people would speak of the book of Genesis where God, um, as the narrative goes, Adam and Eve are created, and God says, and, and you will be my, my images here, my delegated authority. You will have dominion over the world. You, I will give you a portion of my dominion, and you will serve um, for the betterment of all things under you, all the created order, and you will guide and you will, okay? And that's what is happening here. That's what it is mirrored after. So there is this language, binding and loosing. Okay, but, and, and every time you see Paul now painted in, in, Christian, um, in the ancient Christian church, what you see is, I mean, Peter, what you see is Peter with a set of keys, right? Um, because this is a huge thing. It's a reminder of the church that we are here to do the things that Jesus was doing. Jesus has no human body on this earth anymore except for the church. We are the body of Christ and we carry on the work of Jesus. Um, we reconcile, we bring healing, we bring peace, um, we reject and things like redemptive violence and, and, and we lay ourselves down um, for the good of the world. We, we allow ourselves like Jesus to be broken and poured out to make things whole again. This is what the church is supposed to do. This is how we are called to live. Um, and so um, the binding and loosing um, it's an important thing because it was done in community. And we see that here in the very next verse, which is oftentimes taken out of context as well. Uh, verse 19 through 20. Again, truly I tell you that if two, if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, uh, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. Now, normally this, this whole verse about where two or three are gathered and God is there. Normally we only quote that verse when like two or three people show up. But um, it, it, actually, it actually had um, a lot of meaning. In, picture this, a first century synagogue, okay? Um, the rabbi goes to the ark where the, the scrolls are kept and he opens the doors and he pulls out the scroll and he holds it up and everyone is silent and they reach hands towards it. They kiss their hands and they try to touch the scroll as he passes it through and he lays it down on the table and he rolls it out on the table and he reads a passage of the Torah and he tells them, this passage has a deeper meaning than just law. And I want you to meditate upon it. And, and, and what they would do is they would break off into groups of two or three. And they would spread around the synagogue. And they'd be huddled in little corners debating the meaning of it. And the goal of the debate was to come to the same conclusion that the rabbi was going to come to in just a second. Okay? Now, um, they would do everything they could. And they would argue. They would go back and forth. And they would try to devise the meaning of it. And the rabbi tells them, while you are doing this, the spirit of God is there guiding you in your decisions. Think and pray deeply. You can find the meaning, the right interpretation of this law. By the way, Augustine would say, um, uh, if your interpretation of the Bible 
brings you to love God and love people more. It is likely the correct interpretation. Um, and so they're, they're there gathered in these corners and they are debating the meaning of the whole thing. Um, and then the rabbi gathers them all back together and he says, one by one, tell me the interpretation. And they would say it. I think this law means this. And there's two responses that could happen. The rabbi could either say, you have abolished the Torah, like you've got it wrong. Or you have fulfilled the Torah. You have achieved the right interpretation, which of course was that particular rabbi's interpretation. Am I right? Um, so, um, because this is, <laughs> this is what they've always done. Um, so you have either abolished it or you have fulfilled it. And so Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, comes along. And after teaching them, after saying, you have heard it said this, but I say this. You have heard it said this, but I say this. You have heard it said this, I say this. He stands up and he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He says, I didn't come to get this wrong. I didn't come to make the same mistakes everyone before me has made. I came to make things right and to help us understand the text in the correct understanding, in the way God intends for us to live, a way that will bring healing and wholeness to the world. All right, are you with me? This is what God, this is what Jesus was doing here. All of this falls under sort of the the understanding of the Rabbi Talmudim thing. So binding and loosing was done in community, always, I want you to think about this um, compared to sort of modern day um, understanding of the Bible. In the first century, um, a community, an entire town of Jewish people was incredibly lucky if, if they actually had one entire Bible, one entire scroll containing the entirety of, of the Old Testament. Um, it would be very, very expensive, very hard to come by. It was, it was a lot of work. It had to be checked and double-checked and triple-checked for accuracy to make sure that everything was perfect before it would be sent off. And it was incredibly expensive. Oftentimes, communities would just have one or two books, and the rabbis would do what they could with those. Or they would go study other places and come back and teach. Um, but it was very rare that, that these first-century Jews or even Christians after them would have a copy of the Bible. Um, the printing press wasn't invented until the Elizabethan period, right around you know, the mid-1400s, right? So as far as possessing an actual copy of the Bible goes, that is a brand new thing in church history. Um, you live in a time where you have unfettered access to the writings of the ancient Jewish people and the writings of the early church that n- at no point throughout history, before the last three or 400 years, has anyone had? Um, and so there arises this debate because this can cause problems because what happens is we encourage everyone, get your Bible, read it by yourself, come up with your own interpretation of it, and you ask yourself the question, what does this mean for you? I'm not saying this is bad. I want you to contemplate this. Um, this is a brand new invention in, ancient, in, in, in human history because from the dawn of the scriptures, it has always been this communal thing. People didn't have a Bible and so when they read it, it was out loud. They would, um, you know, you heard it, you discussed it. Um, somebody would study it, read it out loud. You would study it together communally. Um, you, you argued about it. You made decisions about it as a group, as a community. So if one person decided to go off the deep end and to come up with some new interpretation of something, and they come over here and they're like, well, you know what I think? I've decided that it's, it's, it's turtles all the way down. I'd be like... I don't know where you got that. I think you made it up on your own because there's no communities teaching this kind of thing. Um, And now we need to talk, right? It is not, in fact, turtles all the way down. Um, 
It's an ancient medieval thing. Never mind. Don't worry about it. Some of you, some of you history fans get it. Um, now, um, so there's this idea in the ancient world that the understanding of God is found in community. That we come together and we speak the scriptures to each other. Of course, we have all kinds of all kinds of new ways that actually supplement our individual reading. We have commentaries, we have the internet, and we have chat rooms, and, and all kinds of resources that nobody has ever had. Um, the first, okay, let me talk about the manuscripts for a second. The, the early church manuscripts. There are about five um, particular families of manuscripts that come from really, really expensive translations um, that were done professionally by professional scribes. There's about five families of them and we have all of them and we compare them and you can pick up any like any ancient scroll that has been preserved that is considered important and you can look at it and you can kind of you can kind of read it and say, oh, this comes from this family. This comes from this family. We know sometimes even um, where and when this was um, this was copied. We know where this came from and we can trace the scriptures all the way back to very, very early on. However, the vast majority of, of, of ancient papyri, of, of fragments that we find of the Bible, um, are really of not of scholarly use. Because the average person, the average Christian, who valued the Bible more than anything, never had a copy of it. And so they'd be writing from memory. Um, they'd be hearing somebody quote the scriptures, and who knows if they said it right, but is that piece of scripture? And they would find something, some way to write it down and find a way to save it because it was all they had. And so they would do everything they could to hide it in their heart and to remember it and to contemplate it because they could not get a hold of these writings of the apostles. They were for the rich people. They were locked up in places like the Vatican, right? Um, And so the understanding of God was done communally. Matthew 18 is a passage about community. And how the Christians treat human beings in their community. And we're going to talk more about this in a bit. But a general understanding is here's some terrible drawings for you, okay? All I have is six figures. It's all I've ever had. Um, and, okay, so you're, you have an understanding of God that, that you come to the table with, right? And you get this from studying the Bible, maybe on your own. Uh, a lot of it has to do with the way that you were raised. You inherited faith from your parents, uh, from books you've read. Um, you've read some things that have challenged the things that you read. Maybe you've deconstructed, but you have an experience. You have met people who think differently. Um, you've had relationships. Maybe you've been hurt by the church. All of that comes together to make your view of who God is. And you come to the table with this. And, and what we need to do is we need to understand that our lens of God, the way we look at God, is sort of this conglomeration of our own, solely ourselves, uh, experience, our own views of God. When we come to, to a church, when we gather with other people, especially, especially a church that is, um, that is filled with different types of people from different places um, who think differently with different backgrounds, um, what happens is... We, we also receive all of their views of God, their experiences, and we have conversations that we never would have had. We have um, people saying things that we've never read or we've never studied, and there becomes this sort of collective understanding of different ideas of, of how to look at God from different angles. And it becomes incredibly beautiful and incredibly important. The disciples were an incredibly diverse group of people. Some of them were zealots. In other words, they were like um, first century sort of terrorists. They would, they would kill Roman soldiers in crowds. They would carry these daggers. Um, some of them were um, religious, pious people. Some of them were tax collectors who had turned on their own people and were working with the government to oppress their own people. Some of them were just fishermen, just a very diverse group of people. 
each of them, I think Jesus chose each one of them because of their vast different experience um, and what that would bring to the table. In the church, we understand God better when we gather with other people, okay? When we gather in houses and we have deeper conversations and we vocalize our thoughts and we disagree and we argue. And, and the rabbis would say, when you do this, as difficult as it is, God is in that. God is part of this whole thing. He is guiding this conversation, trying to open you up into a bigger wider view of who exactly God is, okay? Um, All of this is incredibly important. Um, This is the whole binding and loosing thing. Now, um, Matthew 18, the entire chapter is about relationships of people with other people. Last week, we we did the first uh, 18 or 19 verses or so. No, we didn't. I think we did. I think we may have done 10 verses. Um, And the general idea of that is in the church, we live differently. Um, outside the church, they have classes and they have um, s- social status. And it's the first century, right? You lived or died by social status. Um, but in the church, when you walk into the church, what you, you, what you would experience is a whole other existence, a whole other world where everyone can, is considered equals. There were slaves. There were masters. There were men and women. There were, there were Jews. There were Greeks. Everyone gathering together where outside those doors, they all had a different status in the community. And they, they likely were not allowed to welcome other people as brothers. But in the church, brothers and sisters, equals in the church. It was a whole different way of being. And so there is this conversation because when, when you get into a community like this with the intent of becoming more fully human, right? More loving, um, more gracious, more merciful, um, having the role that God has created you to have, our role in, in creation, um, things get messy. And so Jesus has some instruction here for all of this. He says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two brothers along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. That is in quotations. Notice that. We'll get to that. Um, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they, if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, um, when we read this out loud... And I, and I sort of pay attention as we go through certain parts. Sometimes I'll hear like sighs or ooh, stuff like that when I'm reading stuff, right? And I heard some of that here. I think that's important. Um, because some of this kind of rubs us the wrong way. Um, let's work through it. The first thing I want us to see um, is right here, if you're a brother or sister. Um, so this is specifically talking about um, communities of faith. Uh, and the relationships in the community of faith. Not outside that particular community, not people outside the church, just you and I, our relationship in the faith. Um, And the second thing you likely need to see is that in the context here um, of Matthew 18, um, there is a personal offense that has happened. If your brother or sister sins, Go and point out their fault just between the two of you. And if they listen to you... Now, the, the Greek here, different translations will actually say sins against you. That is likely the better understanding of this passage because it is a personal offense. Um, we aren't necessarily told 
uh, sort of in a scenario like this, like on these particular things, confront these things. But we are told that it is, it is a personal offense. So it is likely, in the context of, of, of Matthew 18, it is likely the stuff that was going on outside the church working its way into the church. Um, because Paul writes about this all the time. There are these gatherings and there's high class and there's low class, low society and high society in the church. And Paul writes to, uh, to sort of... Um, uh, um, give a scathing review of a particular church where the high society were not allowing the low society to share the meal at the table with them, which is how you showed fellowship in the ancient world. Table fellowship was the most important thing. It determined what status you had. That's why in the church, everyone went to the table together. That's why the most important thing Jesus did was served a meal, right? Bread and wine, um, so that we are all equal together. And so at the table, they weren't allowing the, uh, the lower sta- status, the lower class to eat with them. Likely this is some of what's going on because the passage right before this talks specifically about making it harder for people um, for whom it is already hard. Oppressing the weak and the poor, oppressing minorities, oppressing women, oppressing slaves and children. Um, the passage before that is all about um, our general posture towards people who are considered weaker in the first century. Um, And it is sort of this reference to Leviticus, like I said last week, which also makes a reference to how we tend to show preference to people higher than us. All of this is forbidden. Never put a stumbling block before a blind person, it says. Um, Don't make the path harder on people for whom it is already hard. Instead, get down, help them, walk with them. Lower yourselves below them and serve them. Because if you see your brother or sister at the bottom... They should not be there. And the best way to fix it is to go beneath them. So they are no longer on the bottom. And that is how the early church functioned. And so in a conversation like this, um, there is likely some sort of arrogant offense going on where somebody is looking down on another, who's judging another, who is insulting and degrading another human being. And so there is this pain. Because, um, because this is what happens in community. It's messy, Okay. And the way this passage is set up is that Jesus is reminding these people that in the world, these kinds of offenses lead to, eventually, war. They cause divisions. They cause separations. They cause people to be thrown aside, cast out, killed. In the first century, you would literally kill someone who offended your honor. These were things that would separate people. You would fight to the death to defend your honor because that is how you survived in the world. And Jesus says, no, no, no. In the church... We do things differently. We are a city on a hill who will live in the way that all people will see humanity should live. And it has to do with reconciliation. So the first step is to go to them. And he says, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, you have won them over. So the first thing you do is you go to them and you say, hey, face to face, by the way. There is something I want to make you aware of. There has been a fault. There is an offense. There is something that you have done against me and I want to talk to you about it. We must reconcile. And it, if it works, if you talk it out, um, then you have done good and you can win them back. Your brother or your sister, you can win them back. And if that doesn't work, it says this. It says, if they will not listen, take one or two brothers along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So there's a reference here to the, the book of Leviticus. There's this law that things should have evidence that, that, that you get two people um, who to investigate this thing and to make sure that this is exactly what is happening. And so he says, what you're going to do is you're going to go get two people who are also in your community, and you are all going to go together. Now, this does several things. First off, we have to realize that we all, every one of us, has prejudice. 
about many things. Some of you realize you have prejudice and you fight against it. Some of you don't realize you have prejudice and you need someone to reveal it to you. Bringing more people into the mix for the sole purpose of being extra eyes and extra ears uh, is incredibly important in this situation. Because it is possible that you are misinterpreting. It is possible that your offense is unwarranted. It is possible that there's actually some deeper bitterness that you have towards this person. And these other two people are there to speak to you and offer words of wisdom and understanding. To listen from their side, to listen from your side, and to be some sort of interlocutor. I heard that word the other day, and I was like, that's great. I'm going to try to use it. I don't even think I said it right. Um, now, so uh, this, is, this is what they're doing. To reveal to you your prejudices in this situation, to reveal them their prejudices, and maybe, just maybe, more mouths speaking and more ears listening and more eyes seeing will bring reconciliation. But if not, there's a third step. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, this is one of those passages that has been wildly abused. When I was a kid, I, I have this vague recollection. I was very young, but I have a vague, vague recollection of sitting in my church. It looked a lot like this one. And this, this girl who was teenager, she was a teenager and she was pregnant, was, was dragged up on the stage and her, and her sin was, was proclaimed to the entire community. And she was called to repent or be cast out. I promise you, the early church never had that in mind when they were writing this. This was never the intention of how this was supposed to work. Because what happens is we have lost touch with actually what the early church actually looked like, and it didn't look like this. The early church was about 15 people, maybe 20, gathered in houses in different cities. There was not these mega churches that existed anywhere. They were these really incredibly small gatherings. By the way, in the first century, when the book of Romans was written, the most important book in all of, in all of the New Testament, the, the Magna Carta, really, of Paul, there were three, maybe 300 Christians in Rome at the time. Maybe 300. Most scholars will say about 150. And they were gathered in 15 or 20 in like small, it's a massive city, and they are scattered around. So the only church you had was the one next to you. Right, so um, this was not a situation in which, um, and, and all this comes, in, comes into play when we're interpreting how to use this passage. There was no situation in which uh, you could leave your church and go to one down the street. Didn't exist. Didn't work like that. Um, as Aaron's Kasemon would say, like in the first century, to be in Christ was to be in your church. And if you were outside that church, like there was nowhere else to go. And you basically had lost your Christianity. We, we have a hard time fathoming what it actually would have been like to lose. Imagine, in the first century, maybe you are, maybe you're a slave. And by the way, the vast majority of the early church was slaves. Maybe you're a slave and you live in this world of, of status and hierarchy and you were at the bottom rung and you're just a tool that you can be killed at any time by your master and you, you don't even own your own life and breath. And you go into the church and you experience this whole new way of being and living that you have never experienced, where you are now suddenly equals with people from all walks of life, and you are all together gathering, breaking bread, talking about this new kingdom of whom Jesus is king, and living in this way. And then somehow you, you get off track, and you do things to degrade another human being, 
and they come to you, they're like, this is not how the kingdom works. And they come together. This is not how the kingdom works. You have to see how this works. But you are bitter and you're stubborn and you've never experienced anything like this and, and it's sort of shocking to your system and eventually um, you are pushed out. Small group, small house. First off, it is important to protect abusers, uh, to protect the abuse from the abuser. We can all agree on that. This is how this works. You must protect the abused. And so one of the things they would do is they would push back. And you know what this was modeled after? This was modeled after the cycle of Israel. They would go astray. They would worship other gods, false idols, and they would, they would do these things that had nothing to do with the way they were supposed to live in this world. And you know what God would do? He would kind of push, push himself back. He would kind of let them go. He never forsook them. He just kind of let them experience what they wanted. You want to, you want to practice in the church? You want, you want to practice status? You want to degrade other people? You want to look at yourself as better than and, and be arrogant? Um, you can get that elsewhere. That's what the world is built upon. And so you step out there and you experience that. The entire point of this is that they will, in the end, come back. So imagine you have experienced this whole new way of being and you lose it and you're in the world. And all you can think of is, man, I want that back. I have to have that back. And eventually you go and you repent and you make things right and you learn a better way. Okay, um, boundaries are an incredibly helpful thing. There's a um, Dr. Henry Cloud, a, a sort of popular like writer and, and um, psychologist. Um, his book Boundaries has been really helpful in me in my life, understanding sort of how this actually works. He writes this. He says, "When we begin to set boundaries with people we love, a really hard thing happens. They hurt. They will feel a loss. If you love them, this will be difficult for you to watch, but." Remember that your boundaries are both necessary for you and helpful for them. The entire point of this thing that we now call church discipline, the entire point of it is reconciliation and restoration. And if you are not interested in reconciliation and restoration, then that now becomes your sin, not theirs. That is how it works. Paul regularly is telling people, there's a, there's a passage in 2 Corinthians where someone has has sort of experienced uh, a, a form of church discipline. And Paul writes to them and he says, he says, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for them. The whole point is restoration. It is never the position of the church to banish someone um, and say, you are not welcome here. You can never come back here again. It is always, um, you're breaking community and you're hurting the body. And, and we will not allow this type of abuse to be. And so, um, we are going to set a boundary. Let us know when you are ready to make things right. We are open. We are ready. Okay? There is a process. The desire is always um, restoration and health. Because... Because just like binding and loosing, um, just like understanding God is a communal exercise, you know what else? Understanding you is a communal exercise. You have a view of you. You have a specific view of you that likely no one else has. Maybe it's a really good view. Maybe it's too good. Maybe, maybe it's not good enough. Maybe you look really, really down on yourself. And you know what happens in community? I mean, even if you look in the mirror, you only see one side of yourself. You can't turn sideways and, and see, like... In community, though, what happens is 
we begin to understand. It is designed in a way to help us understand that there are things we don't know about ourselves and that we are here to learn. And so especially when you gather with people who are vastly different than you, they have experiences and backgrounds from growing up in different cultures um, and speaking different languages, living in different places that you don't have and that they can actually speak to um, your faults and your flaws in ways that, that you may need. Maybe they can speak to the things that you see as your flaws and they can speak to them and say, look, that's not you. That is, might be something that you have done, but this is not who you are. And we remind each other of the role that we are here to play and we speak truth. I, I, know, um, there's a, I know of a group of guys who, who gathers every two years and they meet up at a, they meet up at a bar and they get some beers and they, they sit and they, um, they get really honest with each other. And it's called self-aware night um, where they speak things to each other that the other person is completely unaware of. Well, you guide every conversation towards your interests. You're pretty self-centered. Um, you're really hard to get a hold of unless you happen to need something. Um, uh, you don't seem to be interested in anyone else's work, but you want us to ask about yours all the time. Um, you have some really unhealthy habits. You, you ignore your family. You, and they just are very brutal with each other, but they went there to do this because they love each other and they want to be better men. This, this is a perfect example of what community can be and can do. Um, this right here, believe it or not, is not actually a great picture of the early church. This is cultural. I don't even know that this will be around in 300 years, this kind of thing. This large, huge, massive gatherings of people. The house churches have always been um, sort of the way that human beings were meant to be, sharing a meal with each other, living life with each other, gathering in two or three, having conversations, interpreting scriptures, um, coming together, different types of Christians coming together, having real conversations. And when things get messy, there is a specific way um, that you um, are supposed to deal with this stuff. Now, there are absolutely wrong ways to deal um, with offense. Uh, Let me give you some advice. The closer you can get to -to face-to-face conversations, um, the healthier it will be and the better it will be and and that's more the way it was intended to be. May I recommend that you do not, should you find yourself in a position of talking to somebody about offense, do not use email. Just don't do it. It's a brand new invention and it's so easy to fire off a letter in your jammies late at night in bed. Okay? Um, that, is, that is not the path of Jesus. It's just really not. Um, Whenever even Paul wrote to somebody and said, um, I have some harsh things to say, he always followed up with, and I'm coming to you to talk about it. I'll be there soon. It's sort of like, think about these things. We need to talk about them, okay? Uh, um, phone call is better than email. Uh, face-to-face is the best situation. Um, second, um, don't talk to other people. Talk to that person. As a matter of fact, if someone comes to you, and starts talking about the offense of someone else to you, go ahead and assume they're in the process of Matthew 18 and they have already talked to them about it and they are asking you to come with them. Okay? And you're going to say, oh, okay, I'll come with you. What do you mean? Well, we got to go talk to them now. You get out your phone, start putting a text. What are you doing? I'm setting up an appointment. Why? Because we're going to talk to them about it. No, 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 I'm talking to you about it. Yeah, you're on step two. This is the part where we go and really make it hard. 
just stop it there forever. They will never gossip to you again. (laughs) This is how this is supposed to go, okay? Uh, We are a community, okay? And remember, you are not Martin Luther. Don't write a 95 Theses and nail it to their door and disappear, okay? Um, I've been a pastor a long time. I've had a lot of 95 Theses posted on my door, wall, email address. Um, This is not how things are to be. You don't write someone angry emails and then disappear never to talk to them again. Okay, that is anything that they have done to offend you, you are now the one in sin who who needs to be, um, who needs to make some moves for reconciliation. Okay? Um, The door is open for reconciliation and restoration. It requires hard, difficult work, always. Um, And remember, if you must find a new community, move on to set some boundaries from a group and move to another group, if you must do this for some reason, um, for your own health or for the health of them, if it's just not working, leave on good terms. Like, Like, talk it out. End it with a prayer. End it with affirmation of like, here's where we've come from. It was incredible all these years and good memories. And then, and then do your thing, all right? Do things the way they were intended to be. Do things through grace and mercy in restoration. Um, the church is supposed to be different. But rarely lately are we. Um, and so all of that leads to this thing that I wanted to leave last, okay? The very... First passage from today, there's a little story, and it's beautiful. And, and now, with all of that other picture in your mind of, of, of what the early readers are thinking as they're reading all this to them, um, let's read the parable, shall we? He says, what do you think? In other words, he's inviting them in to think about something, okay? Ponder this. Bind and loose this. I'll tell you a parable. If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. He's never going to stop pursuing, and neither should you. As a matter of fact, at, at almost every site of the ancient early church that we find that is still intact, what we tend to find is images of the good shepherd. Here's like a mosaic. It's obviously newer, but we find these ancient paintings and carvings and reliefs and mosaics of Jesus as the good shepherd to remind people in community that a good shepherd pursues the sheep that get away. And we, as the body of Christ, are here to be the shepherd of God's people. Each and every one of us has a part to play, a role to play. And we chase people down and we let them know we love them. And then even if they must go away for a while, we'll be here waiting for them to come back. This is why this, the New Testament is so filled with stories like the prodigal son and all that. We are, we are here. We are in a, a small kingdom living in the middle of these kingdoms who, who banishes and kills and destroys all who disagree with us. But in the church, we restore, we reconcile, we make things right. Okay? Um, why don't we take communion? Communion is, is how we recognize all of this. Um, our communion service, you guys can take the elements and spread around there. There are two elements in communion. There's bread 
and there is wine. The bread is the body of Christ broken for you. The wine is the blood of Christ poured out for you. This is how Christians believe healing comes into the world. Um, Jesus' body and blood were broken and poured out for us so that we could find healing and purpose and community of, of, of selflessness again. And so the body of Christ, the church, should be a group of people who allows ourselves to be broken and poured out so that other people can be healed. This means pouring out of our... Um, of, of every areas of our life, our time, our money, our abilities, um, all of it. We pour ourselves out for the world around us so that they can find healing. Um, and communion is an interesting thing because you can gather people together from all walks of Christendom who believe all kinds of different things. And when you bring them all together, you know what's going to happen? There's going to be a lot of theological debate. and There might even be some, some angry you know, words thrown about. But when you put communion in the middle of the room, you know what's going to happen? They're all going to line up and take communion. Why? Because this is what we agree upon. This is how healing enters into the world. The body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you. Let's pray and uh, take some time and talk to Jesus. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Help us to learn to reconcile. Um, As we gather in rooms and and houses this week um, with people who maybe we're close to and others whom maybe we are not close to, I ask that uh, you would be present and you would remind us Um, that restoration is the point of of the kingdom of God. Allow us to learn to pour ourselves out for other people so that they can be made whole. Um, Teach us not necessarily to stand and fight for our own way, but for their health and their goodness. Let us be your presence at the dinner table. In your name, amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.